If you have a Bible, go with me in your Bible to Jonah chapter 3. It's been a minute, hasn't it? The last sermon that we preached in Jonah, I went back and dug through my files. It was back on February 19th of this year. Doesn't that feel like a lifetime ago? February 19th. That was BC, right? Before COVID. And the world was a very different place back then. And when everything kind of happened, Sean and I felt like we needed to address some things. And so we took a break from Jonah. It turned into an extensive break. But having finished now our Heart Cries series, looking at the Psalms, which was just fantastic, had so much fun doing that series, um, we felt like it would be appropriate to circle back because we had some unfinished business with Jonah. So we want to wrap that study up. We'll be in Jonah 3 tonight. And then Sean will be in Jonah 4 next week. And then after that, we're going to launch into a study in the book of Joshua. Joshua, walking in the promises of God. So Joshua in a couple of weeks. Um, but tonight, Jonah chapter 3. And here's the title for my message. The greatest and shortest sermon ever preached. And you're thinking, that's, that's bold and perhaps a bit presumptuous. You haven't even begun your sermon, and you're already claiming it the greatest and shortest. That's not about my sermon, understand. We're going to be looking at Jonah's sermon here in Jonah chapter 3. So don't let that be any kind of bold statement on my part. This is about Jonah. Um, but before we get into Jonah 3, I need to do a little, little bit of legwork here and bring us up to speed since it's been so long. Most of you will recall that the book of Jonah begins with the Lord giving Jonah a message. He wants to send Jonah to the Ninevites and he instructs him to bring with him a message about repentance so that they might turn from their sins or judgment is coming. Now, Jonah didn't want to bring this message, obviously. He reasoned in his heart, and rightfully so, I might add, that were he to go to Nineveh and were he to preach this message of impending judgment on the Ninevites, that they might actually repent. And then he reasoned, if they did that, God is so loving and so gracious and so kind that he would probably forgive them. And so Jonah doesn't want that to happen. So when the Lord says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, which is north and east of where he was, Jonah instead boards a ship for Tarshish, which just so happens to be south and west of where he was. So he goes in the complete opposite direction, and that's when Jonah learns a valuable lesson. He learns that you can't outrun God. Have you ever learned that lesson? Have you ever tried to run from God? God nudged you to do something or perhaps to not do something and you thought you knew better and so you forged ahead and then you learned that valuable lesson that you can't outrun God. There's no place so remote that you can't get away from him. As the psalmist wrote, where can I go from your spirit? Remember this? We looked at this in Psalm 139. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, Behold, thou art there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So that's the lesson many of us have to learn. Some of us learn it the hard way. Certainly Jonah did. First, the Lord sent a storm to stop him. But when that didn't do the job, he prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah up and get him to God's desired or intended destination. By the way, on that point, 
God knows how to get you to your calling. God knows how to get you to where he wants you to be, where you're supposed to be in life. Now, there are generally two tracks, two ways that you can go to God's calling and find your way into your destiny. One is the hard way, the other is the easy way, right? You can go coach or you can go first class. And God had a variety of means and methods that he could have deployed to get Jonah to his calling. But Jonah, of course, chose the hard way. Inside the belly of the fish, he sat for three days and three nights. And eventually, the fish swims all the way to Nineveh and then barfs Jonah up on the beach. On that point, I heard a story about a Sunday school teacher who was teaching through the, the, the story of Jonah with her kids. And she asked them on completion, now, boys and girls, what do we learn from this story? One little girl raised her hand and said, well, I think we learned that people make whales sick. <laughs> That may be true. After all, the whale did barf him up. But here's the more important lesson to be learned from the first part of this story. You ready for it? It is impossible to outwit, outrun, or outlast God. Somebody say amen. amen. I don't care how hard you try, how far you go, how fast you run, you will never be able to leave him behind. He will continue to chase you down until you are safely his. So with that being said, we can go into our text. Let's begin with verse 1. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Everybody say, a second time. I am so thankful that this verse is in the Bible. It says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. But it just as easily could have said that the word of the Lord came to Daniel a second time, or the word of the Lord came to Mary a second time, or the word of the Lord came to John a second time. You, we could easily insert your name into that verse, because how many times has God's word come to you again and again and again after you've messed up? It's a good reminder for all of us that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done. God can and will use you and redeem the things that you've done to run from him if you surrender to him. It's one of the major takeaways from this book. Now, this is a bit surprising to some. I mean, it would have been far easier, wouldn't it, for God to have ditched Jonah after he chose to rebel. It would have been easier for God to scrap that plan and pick someone else and send them to preach to Nineveh in Jonah's stead. Certainly, that's probably the, what I would have done, but, but thank God he's not like me, right? Thank God he's not like you either. <laughs> God's pursuit of Jonah teaches us this important lesson. He cares just as much about the messenger as he does about getting the message out there. She says, that's why God didn't give up on Jonah. It's why God won't give up on you either. You see, the God of the Bible, he's a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. Some of us are up in there in the six digits already. He gives chance after chance after chance. Adam rebelled against God in the garden. And what did God do? God covered him. Moses murdered a man. And God commissioned him. Elijah tried to quit and complained, and God used him. Peter denied the Lord, and then who did God choose to preach on the day of Pentecost? Of course, it was Peter. John Mark deserted the mission team, and then God used him to pen the second gospel. And this practice of 
picking broken people, people who are tore up from the floor up, messed up in every way, picking people like that to fulfill his perfect plans, purposes. It's something that God continues to do. It's been said like this. God's able to draw straight lines with crooked sticks and praise God that that's true. Somebody say amen. Amen. One more story on this point before we move on because I think it's such an important point. This is a story I heard years ago. It was about a promising young executive at IBM. He was involved in some risky venture for the company and in the process ended up losing IBM $10 million. Soon after that gaffe, he was called into the offices of none other than Tom Watson Sr., the CEO of IBM for over 40 years. You can imagine the lump in his throat as he walked through those glass doors. Overwhelmed, guilt-ridden, he blurted out, I guess you've called me in here for my resignation. Well, here it is, I resign. And listen, this is how Watson replied. He said, you must be joking. I just invested $10 million educating you. I can't afford your resignation. (laughs) Listen, similarly, we find that God specializes in taking our messes and our mistakes And he specializes in transforming those things and turning them into fruitful ministry. He uses broken, messed up people. After all, he doesn't really have another choice, right? If God only used perfect people, then we might might as well go home. And if you're looking for a perfect church on that note, you might as well look for another church because this is a church filled with broken people. No perfect people allowed here. But again, it's a great reminder for all of us that if God used Jonah, he could use us. Your future doesn't have to be defined by your past. Your best days aren't behind you, but before you. And it's never too late to start becoming who you might have been. Now, let's go ahead and look at what the Lord had to say to Jonah in verses two through four. He says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. That's important. And Jonah, listen, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, so about midway into the city, the center of town. And he proclaimed, and here's his message, the greatest and shortest sermon ever preached. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So that's Jonah's sermon, and we'll get to it in just a moment. But let's begin in verse 2 with God telling Jonah, go to that great city of Nineveh. Now, the first time God approached Jonah, he said to him, go, and Jonah said, no, and then God said, oh, and he prepared the fish, and that's when the fish gets involved. And he learns some important lessons along the way. And the second time that God comes to Jonah and he says, go, we read in verse 3 that Jonah obeyed the voice of the Lord this time. This is, of course, the same exact message that Jonah received the first time around. But that, that tells us, again, another great lesson, life lesson for us here. God is willing and he's patient with us. And he'll teach us the same lesson over and over again until we get it. So if you haven't heard the voice of the Lord recently, and you say, I used to hear the voice of the Lord, but it's a voice that has become foreign to me. I no longer hear God speak to me in his word like I used to. 
There's a good chance that at some point along the way, you said no to God. And God's not gonna tell you the next thing to do until you first go back and do the last thing that he told you to do. So let's go back to that place, obey the voice of the Lord in whatever area you said no to him, and all of a sudden, the the channels will become clear once again and you'll hear his voice with clarity again. That's what Jonah learned. And then notice too, how the Lord describes Nineveh as a great city. I'm gonna spend just a minute here painting a picture for you of what made Nineveh a great city. Couple of things, first of all, Nineveh was great in size. The Bible tells us that it took three days to walk through it. By ancient standards, that's absolutely huge. We know, historically speaking, that Nineveh was comprised of five regions that encompassed an area of 60 square miles. The city was also surrounded by this huge wall that was 10 stories high. It had a number of turrets along it, actually 1,500 towers that were equally spaced, and those were 20 stories tall. They housed weapons, and there were places where they could watch for approaching armies. Historians estimate that the combined population of the area was probably between 600,000 and a million people. So it was great in size. But secondly, Nineveh was also great in terms of its significance and its influence. Not too long ago, back in the 1850s, archaeologists actually discovered an ancient library in Nineveh that dated all the way back to the times of Jonah. It's the oldest library in existence that we know of. And in this library, check this out, they found over 30,000 clay tablets written in cuneiform. They had different stories, histories, letters, medical texts, government documents, and fragments of documents. And these, these fragments, these, these histories, they give us a picture of what life was like. And we find a people that was advanced in mathematics and science and astronomy and, and a very technologically advanced culture. So they were great in significance and influence. But thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, Nineveh was great in its wickedness. Listen, the Ninevites were notoriously wicked. History tells us how when they would overthrow another army, that they would take the prisoners of war, they would chop off their noses, some of them they would chop off their tongues, or they would, they would chop off their ears. There are accounts of them taking prisoners of war and burying them up to their necks in the hot desert sand and then forcing them to listen to Nickelback albums on repeat. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That last part's a lie, but the rest of it is true. It was, it was a greatly wicked city. There's one other way in which it was great. It was a great place for a revival to take place. Now, on this point, you might be thinking, wait a minute. You just told me how wicked it was. It seems like it's more ripe for judgment than revival. But listen carefully. Any city that is ripe for judgment is equally ripe for revival. Somebody shout and say amen. You see, we can't ever forget that the God that we serve is a God who specializes in touching the untouchables, reaching the unreachables, loving the unlovables of society. He loves sinners. He loved them so much, in fact, that he sent Jonah all the way from Jerusalem to Nineveh to preach the gospel to them. 
And he loves you so much that he left heaven and came to this earth and died a horrible death on, on the cross by way of crucifixion. And he absorbed your sin in mine. And he died in your place for your sin so that you might be saved through him. That's the God of the Bible. Don't let you, anybody ever tell you that God doesn't love people. He's a God that loves to bring revival. It's what he does. It's who he is. It's what he's all about. Now that we've considered the city and God's heart for it, I want to turn our attention to the message, the message that God sent Jonah to preach. Now, as far as messages go, this is a, this is a pretty short one. It's pretty condensed. It consists of just eight words in the English language, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. If I had three more fingers, eight words in English, it's only five in the Hebrew language. That was it. No flowery introduction, no elaboration, no illustration, no exposition, just one short, terse sentence about impending judgment. Now, let's be honest, that sounds like a pretty depressing and horrible message. I've preached some pretty Brad sermons in my life, and every once in a while, I'll dig back into my files to see, like, oh, I've taught this before, I think. Let me see what I wrote. And, and I'm like, oh, that's painful. But as bad as they were, I don't know that I've ever preached any that are as bad as this one. I thought of actually titling this sermon originally, The Worst Sermon of All Time. Like, here's how, because I have like an overactivated imagination, here's how I see this scene playing out in heaven. I, I imagine the angels approaching God. Hey, God, we heard you have a plan to reach Nineveh. That's, that's awesome. What's, what's your plan? Well, I'm, I do have a plan. I do love the Ninevites, and, and I've decided I'm going to send Jonah. And the angel's like, huh, jo like the same Jonah that, that hates Nineveh, are you sending him? God goes, yeah, I'm sending Jonah. They go, oh, okay, Any, anybody else with him? No, just, just Jonah, oh, okay, huh. Well, what, what are you gonna have Jonah do? Is he gonna do some miracles when he gets there or something like that? No, no, no miracles. I'm just gonna have him preach an eight-word sermon. Okay. <laughs> What's, what's the eight-word sermon? I'm sure it's power-packed. Every word is going to be awesome. And, and God goes, here it is. 40 more days and judgment is coming. The angel goes, oh, wow, that's the sermon, huh? We might want to rethink this plan, God. After all, the, the Ninevites are wicked. Their hearts are hard. They seem like they're unreachable. And that's when this smile cracks on the corners of God's lips and a sparkle lights up his eyes and he says, let's just wait and see how it goes. And so this is Jonah's sermon. He preaches it loud, he preaches it bold, he preaches it in the very heart of the ancient city of Nineveh. And I thought initially that it was the worst sermon ever, but as I studied it, the more I began to see like, oh, this sermon's not so bad. Actually, this sermon's kind of rad. This is an awesome sermon. Hear me out on this. There are a couple of things that this sermon had going for it. Number one, it was true. That's a good place to start with this sermon. And that's more than can be said for a lot of the sermons that are getting preached from a lot of pulpits in America today. There are a lot of preachers out there that are willing to tickle itching ears and they'll tell you what you want to hear and they won't ever talk about things like sin or judgment or hell because those are inconvenient truths, but they just so happen to be true. And so we need to start with the truth in your sharing with people. We can't avoid topics just because they're inconvenient or because people may not want to hear them. 
What we need to give people is the unvarnished, unfiltered, undiluted truth of God. That will give your message power. Secondly, Jonah's message, not only was it true, it was also biblical. It's easy to pick on Jonah for what he said, which I have already done. Shame on me. But if you go back to verse 2, God says to Jonah, go to the Ninevites and proclaim to it the message that I will give you. So this isn't Jonah's message. This is God's message. And whenever you repeat the words of God, you have power in your words. You see, there's always power in the word of God. As, as Isaiah the prophet declared, or the word of the Lord through Isaiah says, my word will not return to me empty, but it always accomplishes what I desire and achieves the purpose for which I send it. That is an important thing for us to note and remember. When I espouse my views, when I pontificate on my theories, when I give you my little thoughts on a subject, that may or may not land. But that's why I make sure to read from this book and we come straight out of the Bible each and every time we gather. Why? Because his word always lands. And note that in your personal sharing of the gospel with friends, family members, and coworkers, classmates. When you share God's word, it always hits its target. No one knew that better than Billy Graham. He understood the importance and essentiality of preaching the Bible. In fact, he built his entire ministry around this one catchphrase. The Bible says, right? I can't do it like Ray Bentley, but that's what he said. And it was all over all of his sermons. And he based all of his sermons on what the Bible says. It wasn't his message. He was just a herald, a messenger, declaring the, the, the word of the Lord, no matter who he was talking to. Why? Because God's word is unlike any other book. It's not a, just a history book, although it contains history. It's not just a, a book of poetry, although there are poems in here. It's not just a song book, even though there are songs in here. It's not just a theology book, although it's packed with great theology. It's not just a, a book about end times, although it does touch on those topics as well. At the end of the day, what this book is, is it's living. And as you read it, it reads you. The word of God is living and active. It's, it's a sword. Be careful, you're holding a weapon in your hands and it's sharper than any double-edged sword and it pierces the heart and it divides between the soul and the spirit and the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So preach the word of God. It'll give your words power. And, and then the, the last thing I want to tell you about Jonah's sermon, the thing that made it powerful and effective, is that it was a hope-filled sermon. Now this one doesn't seem so obvious, right? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That doesn't sound too hopeful, but hear me out. As you dig into it, there are seeds of hope buried within this sermon. For one thing, the mention of 40 days, that's significant. And throughout the Bible, we see this number pop up from time to time, and there's significance in numerology. And when you see the number 40, it is associated with two things. Judgment, number one, and testing, number two. So judgment, 40 days of rain on the earth during the flood of Noah. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for the Israelites because of their disobedience. But then, 40 days of testing of Jesus in the wilderness before he overcame the devil. And then he spends another 40 days on earth after his resurrection and before his ascension. 
So there was something to that. When the Ninevites heard 40 days, they reasoned rightly so. That if it's not happening for 40 days, then that means there's time. And if there's time, then there's hope. Because if we're not dead, then maybe God's not done with us. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is there's hope in that word overthrown. What? Yeah, yeah, listen, check this out. That word actually can have a double meaning. It can be translated in one of two ways. The first way is the the way you're thinking of, the obvious translation, in, in which it describes annihilation or destruction. You'll be overthrown in that way. But there's another way that this word gets used in the Bible that speaks of being turned or to turn from one's ways. For example, God turned the hearts of the Egyptians in Psalm 105. And then in Deuteronomy 23, we find God turning Balaam's curse into a blessing. Kind of interesting, isn't it? So as you look at the message through that lens, you see it a different way. It becomes this. Nineveh, in 40 days, in 40 days time, either you're going to be overthrown in judgment or you're going to have a turn of heart and give your heart and life totally to God. Which is it going to be? Do you see where I'm going with this? Maybe it wasn't such a bad sermon after all. It was true. It was biblical. It was birthed in the heart of God. And it was hope-filled. And let's not forget the most important thing about this sermon. It was short. It was really, really, really short. And you're thinking, you could take a page from his book, but I'm not going to. Because there's one more thing that I want to talk to you about. You see, not only was his sermon all those things, Jonah's sermon was also effective. Let's go ahead and pick up our story in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God, and a fast was proclaimed on all of them, from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth. It's a real itchy, uncomfortable kind of material associated with repentance. And he sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, don't let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. The cows are going, what did we do wrong? <laughs> let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This, friends, is a great revival. Any revival that is so entire and complete that it affects everyone from the greatest to the least, from the king to the cow, that's a great revival. And that's a good sermon. Now you know why I called the sermon what I did. Now there have been a number of great revivals throughout history. There was the Great Awakening in America in the 1740s and 1750s. This was the funnest part of my sermon prep this week, going back and re rehearsing and just reliving and reading about all these revivals. And 
And back then there was a guy named George Whitfield who burst onto the scene. He was like this young 25-year-old guy. And he, he had this incredible ministry, not just on this side of the Atlantic, but also in Europe. But he came over here and he began to preach. And, and within a short amount of time, his messages were so powerful that they began to attract huge crowds that would come out to hear him preach. And it was estimated that by the time he retired in just a, a span of a few years, really, he had personally preached to 80% of the American colonies in person. That's, a, that's pretty cool. On his final address, he preached in Boston Commons to a crowd of 23,000 people. That's insane. That, for, for reference sake, that was a bigger number than, than, than the number of people who lived in Boston at that time. 23,000 people, and so there was this great awakening that led to the great revolution of America. Then a, a little over a century later in 1904 and 1905, in Wales, we find the Welsh revival. Now, now one of the cool things that I found out about this revival is that it happened without any kind of press. There was no advertisements, no commercials, no posters, no people telling other people where, where meetings were being held. No publicity or fanfare to speak of. As one researcher put it, I've scanned newspapers of Wales, which came out in 1904 and 1905, and found no paid advertisements that were announcing the meetings. So not one dollar was spent, and yet God broke out. People were saved, like lots of people. 70,000 people came to faith in the first two months of this revival. Why? because God's spirit broke out. More recently, as we think about our own lineage in history, Maranatha Chapel tied into Calvary Chapel. And that ministry was birthed just a handful of miles up the road in Orange County. A guy by the name of Chuck Smith was sitting in his car with his wife and they were thinking about all the, these hippies and their hearts broke and they began to pray. And, and then they, they began to hold services and invite these long-haired hippies in. And, and the Spirit of God broke out in that, that little Calvary chapel there in, in Costa Mesa. And some hippie with long hair named John Wickham gets saved and picks up a guitar and starts singing songs and forms a band called The Way. Some other long-haired hippie named Ray Bentley hears about Chuck Smith. And he gets saved. And he starts a church. And here we are. 30 years later. Hallelujah. And we're saying, God, do it again. Would you do it again? But as great as all of those revivals were, they pale in comparison to the one that, that Jonah led here. I mean, this revival touched every heart and everyone believed. They didn't believe Jonah, it says. It says they believed God. That's, that's important. That's worth noting. They responded to the conviction of the Spirit. And then they repented of their sins, and they humbled themselves. And as a result, God withheld his judgment. Now, there's a lot that I'm struck by in this chapter. But the thing that really stuck out to me the most is, is just how unlikely this was. If you study revivals, there's all these things that we're trying to, to do to bring about revival. And these are the, the, the right elements that need to be in place in order to bring revival. But, but this one stands out as an unlikely candidate. It was an unlikely people 
that revival broke out among. These were the Ninevites, the most wicked people, godless pagan people in the world. It also broke out because of an unlikely preacher. He didn't even want to go to the Ninevites. He hated them, in fact. And there's so much that's unlikely about this place, an unlikely revival conducted by an unlikely preacher in an unlikely place. And then I think about our own situation. And in a lot of ways, America seems like it's an unlikely place for revival to break out. We were founded on Judeo-Christian principles and, and ethics, but we've strayed a long way, haven't we, from our founding fathers, and obviously they weren't perfect, they had their flaws, but you can't argue the fact that there was a lot of this book that influenced the way that our country was constructed. And we wrote on our, our, our coins and on our, our dollar bills, in God we trust, we tell ourselves in, in our Pledge of Allegiance that we're one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, but, but that doesn't seem accurate anymore. Seems like, if anything, we're, we're more ready and more ripe for judgment than we are for revival. Again, to quote the great Billy Graham, he said, on a number of occasions, if God doesn't judge America, then he probably owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. But if we're ripe for judgment, then that means we're equally ready and ripe for revival. There's still hope. So what should we do? A couple of thoughts, and I'm gonna leave you with this. I promise I'll be quick. Number one, we must pray. Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest, but the laborers are few. So pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his fields. It starts with prayer. This revival, you might not realize it, but it started with prayer, a prayer by Jonah in the belly of the whale. He said, I will fulfill my vow. I'm going to make good on what I said. And he prays, and God uses him. It was a, a pitily little prayer, but it doesn't take much. And so it begins with prayer. And then having prayed ourselves full, we must go out and then begin to preach ourselves empty. And you say, that's your job. You're the preacher man. Well, hold on a second. The Bible talks about how the office of pastor exists so that the saints can be equipped to go out and do the work of the ministry. You all are ministers. What kind of message are you preaching with your life? Turn to the person next to you and just remind them, you're a preacher. So what kind of message are you preaching? Let me encourage you to preach a similar message to the one Jonah preached. Preach messages that are true, whether or not they're popular. Preach messages that are biblical. Make sure your message is born in the heart of God, just like Jonah's was. Preach messages that are filled with hope. We have hope. This world needs hope. There is not a lot of hope on the, the major news networks. There's not a lot of hope on the mobile apps that you're reading the news on. We have a message of hope, and Peter said it's our hope that's going to cause people to go, What's the reason for the hope that lies within you? And that's going to give us a platform from which to preach the gospel. So pray yourself full, preach yourself empty. As Romans 10 says, how then can they call on the one in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
So we preach ourselves empty and then finally having prayed ourselves full and preached ourselves empty, we must leave the results in the hands of God knowing that he is a God of revival. His desire is to bring revival. And his desire to bring that revival far surpasses our desire to see it.